It's good to see you. Those of you who are online, um, I was online last week because uh, of the COVIDs and such and quarantine. I am so glad that we are out of quarantine. Guys, I had to take another test, and I was so scared that it was going to be positive and I'd have to quarantine longer. But praise God, we're here. And Owen, my son, has recovered and is doing great. So yeah, Danya sends her greetings this morning and would love for you to fill out this card about how you are going to serve to open up all of our children's ministry classrooms. That's very exciting progress. Well, we're in our final few verses of this long series we've been doing through Romans 12, 9 through 21. Um, Several of our kids have memorized the whole thing. So now we're going to do a test and see how you have done in memorizing. No, I'm just kidding. But we are all going to read the scriptures together. Next week, we'll begin a series in Matthew, selections from Matthew. So let's stand and let's read this scripture out loud all together um, with some gusto, which, which means, you know, like just own this. Yeah, here we go. Ready, go. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you can be seated today. These final few verses, which include that phrase that maybe has puzzled you for the last few months, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Yeah. Ah, So we'll unpack some of these verses. The way of Jesus is striking and difficult for us. Alyssa's illustration is so great. Sweet words, sweet actions, even sweet food can turn the saltiest of hearts. I think God wants to turn some hearts, doesn't he? And hearts are not turned by meeting evil with evil, but rather by meeting evil with good. Does anybody have memories of homemade Play-Doh? Remember homemade Play-Doh? Yeah. I must have been four or five years old, and I loved peanut butter, as I still do, Peanut butter is like the bad influence my parents warned me about. (laughs) Peanut butter is all like, come on, let's hang out. We'll have a party. And then I lay awake with guilt, hoping that no one saw what I did with the peanut butter. So that's, that's peanut butter. Anyway, I remember an edible peanut butter-like Play-Doh. Did anybody ever have this? It's like you could make it and then play with it and then form it and build something out of it and then 
eat it after you've handled it. And as a five-year-old, I thought that was great. I also remember the day that I learned that regular homemade Play-Doh is not edible. (laughs) Rather, it is salty. Yes, it is salty. That's a big difference. The Christian is called to be a pleasant, kind response in a world of over-salted food, even to those who viciously or who violently oppose us, and it isn't easy. I tend to want to fight fire with fire, or when someone is salty with me, as the kids say, right, to heap salt on them. Yeah, return their sass with my sass, but Jesus says to love our enemies, to return sweet for salt. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to return insult with insult, and then to escalate along the violence paradigm that we described a couple of weeks ago, unless we are taught differently, unless we are interrupted, I would say, unless we have a Lord who did it all the way to death and through death so that we always have in our minds what it means to bless those who persecute us. Wow. In part, it is so difficult for us because our culture Society is not built around the totality of Jesus' message and his gospel. Here's some food for thought. There's some baseline assumptions that you and I have that our world does not. Just think about this. The legal code of the United States makes no provision for the resurrection from the dead. Just think about that. It makes no claim on calling victims to forgive, and it cannot, therefore, provide an adequate imagination for the Christian. Just think about that. Our whole society is not predicated on a belief of the resurrection from the dead. It's not predicated on a belief that we should call victims to forgive their oppressors. It, it cannot. So, so no wonder the Christian way of turning the other cheek, of loving our enemies, seems so odd because our whole world is not constructed on these thoughts. But the world of the Christian is. The kingdom of God is squarely built on these ideas. So as such, each of us has been shaped deeply by a culture that truncates, that means it shortens or diminishes or shrinks our sense of reality. Because Jesus is the final reality, he's the ultimate reality. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Anything that does not have Jesus Christ in the center is absolutely unable to tell the full truth about the world. French theologian Jacques Ellul writes this, It is the person of Jesus Christ that makes Christianity. Everything derives from the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Outside of this, the rest is only talk. So for the Christian, always a world that does not accept his lordship will be odd for us, and we will be odd for it. But as Jesus said, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is blossoming and flourishing among you as we live in the way of his rulership and his kingship. But our world divides us into tribes, and then we make enemies out of the opposition. 
It is so common. So let's just consider this contemporary terms, something far away but familiar. Boston Red Sox fans versus New York Yankee fans, okay? <laughs> huh? <laughs> I don't even know. Sorry, all you New Yorkers out there. I'm totally going to brutal, uh, brutalize any sort of imitation, <laughs> impression. Have you guys heard of the bleacher creatures? Anybody? The bleacher creatures? Yeah. It's a hardcore section of Yankee fans, all right, who occupy section 203 in right field every Yankees game. Uh, I don't think this guy is speaking blessings over this red side. Do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, I love you. You're the best. Yeah, tell you what I'm going to do, okay? Make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> they have some fun in the, this is section, this is out in the outfield. Every week, they, I think we should do this at New Hope. They do roll call which is they chant one of the Yankee players' names until the, that the Yankee player acknowledges them. Wouldn't it be so cool? So like Chris Bowlby's here this morning. If we all are like, Bowlby, let's do it. Bowlby, Bowlby, until you, Bowlby, until you acknowledge, Bowlby. I mean, that's kind of fun, right? That's like a culture thing. But they are brutal towards the opposition, especially if you're a Red Sox fan. They chant things that I won't say here or anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I just want to clarify that. Yeah. Consider this. What is it about humanity that seeks to make it enemy out of others? Why do we tend, even in sports ball games, <laughs> to over-identify with our own tribe and seek the disparagement or the disfigurement of the other? I, I don't know if I have all the answers for that, but it's so common. Pastor George Nix, our outreach pastor, sitting right here. Oh, we should all do roll call for, for George. George, George, George. Hey, acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to live. This is going to live. <laughs> yeah. He said this as he was commenting on the message. You guys know our pastoral staff, and others, even outside of church, review our messages every week. And he asked this question, what is it about some Christians that seek to make an enemy out of others? Oh, man. The normal dynamic that us humans slide into is this, that you feel that you're the underdog and somebody is oppressing you and so they are the enemy. Or you're, you feel like maybe you're the champ on top and somebody's trying to subvert you and so they're the enemy. At all times, we tend to feel, unless interrupted by the way of Jesus, that there's always an enemy that we should oppose. Now, I'm not ready to throw away sports. I think they're great. It's just human nature tends to confuse nearly everything we touch. <laughs> but listen, Jesus didn't muck stuff up. When violated, when oppressed, when unjustly accused, when condemned, when whipped, when tortured, when executed, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. We don't know what we do either, and we're called to extend that grace and forgiveness towards others. Jesus did not return evil for evil to the point of his own death. He created space instead for love. 
out of the deep resource of love that has been freely given to you and I, the Christian is called to create space for restoration, renewal, forgiveness, and repentance to transpire. Stanley Hauerwas, in great book, Resident Aliens, everybody should read it. So, yeah. Just waiting for you to buy it on Amazon right now, yeah. He says this, the world was fundamentally changed in Jesus Christ, and we have been trying but failing to grasp the implications of that change ever since. He goes on later, Christianity is an invitation to be a part of an alien people, that's us, who make a difference because they see something that cannot otherwise be seen without Christ. Oh, we see it and we get to live it. So let's attempt to grasp the implications. We are called to do and to be as Christ, to create healing space for the other, whoever the other is, to hold Garden of Eden type space, creative space for love to flourish. How do we do that? Paul's injunction instructs us plainly. Reenact the cross of our Savior. When threatened, disparaged, or disposed of, this is what we do. Let's read it together. Ready, go. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sweet words, sweet actions, even sweet food can turn the saltiest of hearts. So I want to explain these verses a little bit further. In order to do so, I'd like for you to think of yourself as we read these verses Think of yourself as the offender, not the offended. So you are the one that a Christian is responding to. So you are the guilty party. Put that in your mind right now. The one that is someone else's enemy. And let's imagine that it is a, because it's a Christian you've offended, that they are able to hold creative space for newness to come. In other words, they the person that you've offended, are walking out the model of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, and the commands of Paul here. All right, so that's in your imagination as we think about this. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice first, Paul calls the Christian the Beloved. It is only out of the resource of being deeply loved by God that the Christian can extend grace to the other. I remind my kids, I say, do you know that I'm proud to be your dad? I told that to my daughter this morning. She goes, yes, you tell me all the time. <laughs> she's, she's my beloved. God, for the Christian that you've offended right now, they are wrapped up in that love. Your offense, you breaking them, you harming them, cannot steal the fact that they are the beloved of God. And so out of that resource, they are going to respond to you differently than what you deserve or what is normal. We, now put it on us, we're the beloved of God. 
love deeply. Now, the Christian you've offended, others may say that they have rights to cut you out, to disparage you, to return tit for tat. But you live in their grace. Rather than strike back, gossip, or get back at you, they do not avenge themselves. Because they remember that Jesus said, Luke records it for us in Luke 6. It's not on the screen. They remember that Jesus said, be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Rather, they leave room for the wrath of God, as Paul says. They leave room for the wrath of God. Now, that might feel like a dramatic statement, and it is because in our culture, we don't like the reality that God is judge, that he will judge everyone. We tend to think that it's a bit unfair. We think that we would like to write the rules according to how God will judge, but we don't get to do that. But if this statement, if misapplied, (laughs) it could (laughs) make room for the Christian to live in vicarious judgment of the sinful person. What I mean is this. Paul is not instructing us to delight in the possibility that someday the person who has offended you will be subject to wrath. He's not saying, oh, guys, don't worry. They got what's coming to them. (laughs) No, not at all. He is instructing us to trust the justice-making of God and to refrain from our small-minded judgments about the other. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. These are all terms of justice. He will repay but let's not get into the habit of thinking of others getting it when dad gets home. Oh, you're going to get it. And you have like this sweet, syrupy Christian grin on your face because you're like, oh, okay. You don't know. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. And you're subject to the wrath of God. <laughs> I think I'm a little salty this morning. I was like, yeah, a little salty. Yeah. Okay, verse 20. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. So bring that Christian that you've offended back into your mind. Imagine that they walk out this verse. Rather than rejecting you or allowing you to remain hungry, they feed you, they give you something to, re- to drink. What, that mi- what might that feel like when you've offended them? Imagine. Somebody's returning kindness in the midst of your curse. What would it feel like? I think it would feel humbling. That's what it would feel. That's what I think. When we refuse to participate with the tit-for-tat cycle of conflict like Jesus refused to do, it interrupts what is normal and provokes a response and potentially we, we evoke humility by refusing to return evil for evil. Or insults. As Jesus was dying unjustly on the cross, Luke records for us that there were two thieves next to him. One of them, by Jesus' model, was brought to humility. Listen to what this thief said. He was speaking to the other thief. It's not on the screen, but just listen. Picture this moment. And this is what the thief says. We indeed have been condemned justly. That's humility. For we are getting what we deserve for our our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom? And he, Jesus, replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The world paid attention. The thief paid attention on that moment because Jesus was refusing to return evil for the evil that was done to him. Now, the other thief was not brought to humility. He derided Jesus, but both had to ask a big question. What in the world is going on? When a Christian refuses to participate with the predictable cycle of violence, the world notices. People notice. Christians have a tremendous opportunity to make others notice. A new way has been inaugurated. A new way has been started by King Jesus. <laughs> it is a way of truth and it is a way of grace. Jesus paid the price for the sins of all, including those who've offended you. So you get to respond like Jesus, refusing to participate with the cycle of violence. And by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Okay. Recall that Christian who is responding correctly to you. Now they get to heap burning coals on your head. That's what they do. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So what does this mean? It's actually a fairly simple explanation. It feels like quite a parting shot, though, right? Like, does it mean that we get to, like, you know, they get what's coming to them? <laughs> Um, the Bible knowledge commentary provides insight that is in keeping with the thrust of scriptures. And I just, just going to read this brief little paragraph here because it puts it all into context. I might explain a couple of things. This phrase, where it comes from, all scripture has a culture and a place is written to. And like all language, there's a certain, um, oh, what is the word when there's a way that we say something? Colloquialism. Yes. Something that we say that we understand the context um, which other cultures wouldn't. And this is one of those instances. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. Sometimes in that culture, a person's fire went out. That could be their cooking fire, probably was their cooking fire, and needed to borrow some live coals to restart his fire. Giving a person coals in a pan to carry home on his head was a neighborly kind act and made friends, not enemies. Also, the kindness shown in giving someone food and water makes him ashamed of being an enemy and brings God's blessing on the benefactor. Compassion, not revenge, should characterize believers. So this was a phrase that was describing burning coals on the head, describing an act of kindness. So the Christian is to overcome evil with good. For a Christian, it is always good to lay down our lives, but it is not good to return evil for evil. Okay, so as we're coming towards the close, given some explanations, some thoughts, as we close, consider who your enemy might be. I have some prompts. One could be a skilled coworker who might get more favor than you, or a classmate that gets more favor than you, you might be tempted to subtly sabotage them to keep them in their place, to oppress them. A sharp-tongued child, you might be tempted to wield your tongue as a sword in return. A friend who votes Democrat 
a family member who blows up social media with conservative tropes. The cashier who rang you up wrong. The pastor who preached a sermon you didn't like. <laughs> For example. <laughs> the man who cut you off. The employee who stole money from you. The family member who betrayed your confidence. The parent who left you. The former president who angers you. The present president who disappoints you. We could go on. The point is, in a fallen world, enemies are made and the enemization of the other is cultivated. But the Christian is called to interrupt that cycle and overcome evil with good. Sweet words, sweet actions, even sweet food can turn the saltiest of hearts. Thank you, Alyssa, for that. An application before I wrap up with a, a story. Just one thing this week. Who is your enemy and what good can you bring to them? Do it. Interrupt the normal cycle. The world will notice. Your relationships will benefit. Christ is honored and attention is drawn to him who is king, who is Lord over all who holds all of reality in himself and invites you and I to live in that reality. So to close a powerful story that I came across a few years ago, I'll describe the backstory and then I'll let Hector Black tell the final part of the story. Two wrongs don't make a right, do they? That's a phrase. Hector Black, you see on the screen here, his wife and two daughters moved to the South in the 1960s to join the civil rights movement. After a couple of years of being there, they adopted Patricia, a little African-American girl who was suffering in poverty. Patricia grew up and graduated from college. Early in young adulthood, a crack addict named Ivan Simpson broke into her home tied her up uh, and murdered her, raped her and murdered her. Hector is a Quaker and he was thrown into convulsions of grief and anger and despair. Ivan was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and Hector gave a statement at the trial and said, she was not our daughter by any claim of birth, but she was our daughter by every claim of love. I don't hate you, Ivan Simpson, but with everything, I hate what you've done. Then he records that this next phrase was the first time he made eye contact with Ivan Simpson. He said, I wish for all of us who have been so wounded, I wish for all of us who have been so wounded by this crime, I wish that we might find God's peace 
And I wish this for you too, Ivan Simpson. Upon those words, Ivan, with tears streaming down his face, twice apologized for all the pain he had caused. Hector later surmised, this man from the streets who had nothing gave me the only thing he had to give, his apology and his humility. That night, Hector says he couldn't sleep. Forgiveness had begun to lift the burden of despair. And Hector began writing to Ivan in jail. Ivan wrote back, and he said to Hector, I couldn't feel God, but his voice of compassion came to me by, your way, by, the, by way of your words in the courtroom. Hector and his wife built a relationship with Ivan, the man that had murdered their daughter. And I'll let Hector tell the story from here. We sent him a Christmas package. And, and I said, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing, you know, sending a Christmas present to the man who murdered your daughter? And I knew I had to do it. Because I think when you forgive someone, you start to care about them again. And I knew he had no one, no one in the world. We had a small group of people in Cookville. We thought we'd maybe get together with other people who had lost loved ones to violence like this. And I remember one woman whose brother had been killed 15 years before coming in and telling her story. His, her brother was a doctor. He was killed by a man off the streets. To her, a nobody. And she was as angry as if it had happened the day before. And I knew I didn't want, that was no way to live. That was not life. A friend of mine told me that when you hate, you take poison and you expect the other person to die. And I think that's true. My wife and I went to South Georgia to visit Ivan in prison. It took a long time to arrange it. But we felt it was, again, something we needed to do. Is the... So I think what happened there was we were sitting down and talking together for two and a half hours. It was just extraordinary. And because I'm very deaf, I was sitting very close to him. He was unshackled, of course. And when it got time for us to leave, he stood up and I did too. And it seemed the most natural thing in the world that we had our arms around one another. And it was un an unbelievable moment that I could have my arms around the man who murdered. 
But I think forgiveness is possible for the worst. And I do believe we all need forgiveness, God knows. It was the most natural thing in the world for us to embrace each other. We, each like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus, paying the penalty, going to the cross for us, extends to us presence and forgiveness. And like Hector did with Ivan, Jesus writes us this love letter. Jesus extends to us relationship. And when we come into relationship with God through Christ, it becomes the most natural thing in the world for us to embrace each other, God embracing you, making you the beloved, making you be his, his. When we, at one point, were children of wrath, Colossians says. Oh. I think there might be someone in here today that maybe is accepting that love from God, maybe for the first time. And what you're hearing as we talk about loving enemies is the very central thing that God has done for us. <laughs> God has loved us even when we've rejected him. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? If you this morning, for the first time, or maybe it's the first time in a long time, are ready to give your life to Jesus, this one who loved you so much. Would you lift your hand where I can see it? We want to agree with you as maybe you're making that decision. Yeah, I see, sweetie, your hand, yeah. Just looking at your, the left-hand side of the room right now, is there anybody in here to give their life to Jesus this morning? Now I'm looking at the right side of the room. Jesus gave his life for you. Would you like to give your life to him? I see your hand. Yeah. There's a few in the room that are wanting to say yes to Jesus this morning. Let's pray with them. I'll supply some words, and all of us are going to repeat these words. Um, and if this is your prayer, um, make it your own. Repeat after me, ready, go. Father God, I have been opposed to you. I've rejected you, but you haven't left me. You sent your son to this world to die on the cross so I can be forgiven, so I can be a friend of God not an enemy. 
I receive his gift through faith. I trust, I believe Jesus is king over my life. I submit in Jesus' name, amen.